Rob, I also think you're right. I think Lauren Hill is clearly just insanely freakier and just a clear cut of. I don't think I said that, but okay. <laughs> really? I thought you did. I did I not I didn't like, say uh, Lauren Hill was freakier, but yeah, sure. <laughs> Well, not freak. I mean, I mean, like freaky, like in a good way. Like she's more talented. Oh, freak of nature. Yeah. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where experienced musicians and longtime friends get together and discuss an album from Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Each week we go through another album at random. We spend uh, more time than is probably necessary discussing the merits therein, uh, shit-talking, offering our jackass opinions on the album, and then at the end we decide whether or not we think it belongs on the list, and whether you should, in fact, listen to the album. This week, we're listening to the sultry sounds of Amy Winehouse and her album, Back to Black. If you haven't listened to this album, we'll give you a taste of what it's all about throughout this this journey. Um, Then again, we'll vote on whether we think it belongs on the list. Then it's on to the next one after that. Before we introduce the crew, let's, let's jump right in by listening to a sample of the album's opening song and probably the most popular track on the album, which is a song called Rehab. They tried to make me go to rehab. I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. I ain't got the time. And if my daddy thinks I'm fine, they try to make me go to rehab. song called rehab they've probably if anything they've heard this tune <laughs> massive smash hit i mean half I, I, honestly, a billion it, it, listens <laughs> yeah i mean it's like nothing made not getting sober sound like the right decision so effectively <laughs> jesus well uh, this is phil uh yeah i think i think i've covered it <laughs> who else is joining this week <laughs> well said well said. Well, I was going to give a more general take on the album, but this music is like a bar the characters walk into in a hip movie. And this is the band on stage, and it's creating ambiance, but it's not loud enough or interesting enough, I would argue, to capture your attention once you actually take a seat so that the scene can continue on. And this is Adam, and my my quick note here is that the saddest five words in the English language are second and final studio album. I was continually amazed that for as sort of legendary as she's become, whether you like her or not, whether you think her music is good or not, I think she's achieved 
somewhat legendary status. Two albums. That's kind of insane. Yeah, that, that's, right? Sure. That's impressive work. Sure. Um, so I would say my kind of uh, tweet length quip, if you will. So obviously I haven't heard every piece of music that's ever been recorded, but I'm confident this album contains <laughs> the most utterances of the word fuckery of anything else that's out there. Um, so we will, we will get right in here. Um, so for those who don't know Amy Winehouse, I think she's probably a fairly household name, but just to give a little bit of background, British singer and songwriter, I, I wish I could say she was mostly known for her what, what I would probably describe as as an incredibly like singular unique voice. However, I think most people probably associate her with some of the kind of baggage that came along with with her and her career. So, well publicized drug and alcohol problems, sloppy live performances, and her untimely death in 2011 at the yet again cursed age of 27 so she she no way oh yeah she's in the crew she was one of the 27 wow i had no wow all right who else is in that that crew phil rattle off a couple janice joplin kirk cobain, kirk cobain. hendrix yep uh jim morrison i'm sure there's some I'm sure there's some visual artists in that group <laughs> maybe otis redding is otis yeah, redding was he 27 I probably should have died of alcohol poisoning at 27. <laughs> I think maybe one of those those country singers too, like one of the like maybe like Woody Guthrie or uh, the first Hank Williams. That would be something if Woody Guthrie died at 27 because he sounds 97 <laughs> on every recording I've ever heard. What's What's funny is as I was kind of like looking this stuff up, I, I looked up the uh, I, I guess they call it the club the 27 Club, and. There was actually a Wikipedia quote that was like, scientists determined that there is no actual correlation or there's no, you're not more susceptible to die of a drug overdose when you're 27, as if that needed to be like right. scientifically yeah, like scientific. needed to go into that. Like yeah. somebody wasted their, their grant money on that. <laughs> so I, I just Googled it real quick. Brian Johnson, or sorry, Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones, Robert Johnson, the blues guitar player. Wow. Yeah, there's there there do seem to be quite a few. The original keyboardist for the Grateful Dead, Pigpen. Oh man! Oh no shit! Man, yeah. he is a stone jack baller. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good deep pull there, Phil. <laughs> Indeed. So yeah, so she she ultimately fell victim there, um, and I think in some ways it probably cemented her legacy, if you will, in that sort of like better to burn out than fade away. Like you know, I think she was kind of dripping with talent as as we'll we'll get into, but you know who knows where her career would have gone given some of her uh, personal challenges. Yeah, maybe she could have played the Urban Outfitters Christmas Party. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Muzak. You walk in, you think it's coming from the Sorry, speakers. I'm, I'm oh, coming shit. in hot. You're not getting there's, any. You're not getting anything from me for being a tragedy. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to ask that. Did did the tragedy of her life uh, impact your listening to this album at all? To me, there were twinges of it, and I'm trying to stay uh, as uh, even keel as possible and not really let that. You know, influence like, oh, she's dead, so she should be on the list. Yeah, I know, so. I know what you mean, right? Like, there's an element to which, like, the tragedy. It's you know, it's like a, it's like a car accident. Like, you slow down to look, right? And like, does that? It, there's just something about that that just doesn't feel right. Even if you slow down to right. look and you see something like you know, unique, even even amazing, 
uh, you know, just something, something about it feels like, you know, just wasn't for the right reasons or something. something. And there were some aspects that it, even if the songs and the lyrics weren't even necessarily sad, there was something about knowing her demise kind of took like a sad brush and, and just kind of, you know, did a, a big uh, stroke across the whole album and put this real melancholy feel, even though a lot of it's upbeat, 60s, you know, yeah, that's, that's fast really tempo. It, yeah. So it, it was an interesting week for me. She's, it's definitely a cry for help in a pretty yeah, clear, man. straightforward way. That that aspect of it is is sad. It reminded me a little bit of when it really occurred to me that the Beatles song, Help, was also a clear <laughs> indication of John An Lennon's actual, uh, right. mental state. <laughs> right. No, Adam, you make a really good point, though, right? Because it's like, you know, Cher went to rehab and David Crosby went to rehab, right? And they lived, right? So, like, there's something about, like, these songs followed by her death that it, like, you know, not long after that, you know, yeah, you can't help but read into it. And that that results in the songs maybe having a, a posthumous sort of sensation to the listener. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't I try not to let that influence me. The fact that, you know, she's dead and she, you know, her, the, the official cause of death was alcohol poisoning, despite, you know, at the time. Sound, she, that doesn't sound shocking, though, does it? <laughs> it doesn't sound shocking. But I think when you if you look at everything that she has been reported to have ingested at that point Oof, up to yeah, her life. Yeah. Um, yeah. She actually a couple of years before she died, she apparently OD'd. And, you know, survived it, obviously, but she OD'd through a cocktail of, you know, crack cocaine, heroin, um, ketamine, ketamine, I think I read. I mean, yeah, yeah. so I think it was, it was kind of, she was in there. Um, So I don't want to let that color my opinion as far as, oh, she's dead, that's sad. But I do think um, it's hard for that not to seep into your... It's part of the story, for sure. It's part of the story. Yeah, right. That's true, that's true. Yeah. so in terms of kind of her her background, she English kind of singer songwriter grew up in you know North London. She came from a kind of musical family, even though she she did come from a, a pretty like working class. I think her dad was a, a cab driver, and he kind of drove around singing you know Frank Sinatra songs all day. And so he, I think he sort of like embedded that old school jazz kind of vibe in the house. Um, her mom her mom's side of the family, they were a bunch of jazz musicians. So I, I think that that in, she grew up in that environment where she really took to that old school, you know, soul old school jazz kind of thing. And, you know, she, she actually did a documentary. Well, she didn't do it, but a documentary was made on her behalf a few years ago and um, kind of chronicling her, her upbringing. And it was pretty clear that, you know, even by the age of like 12, she had a, a really unique special voice they call it Adam. You would probably know this term more than I did, but um, contralto. Are you f- familiar with this this term at all? No, contralto. I I probably should know from pretending I play the piano, but <laughs> yeah, I think it's like the 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 lowest vocal range that a female can generally hit. And so, uh, okay, okay, yeah, I didn't know that term. Obviously, she has a really I was I was goofing off with with rehab today, and I'm pretty sure the lowest note in the song is a low G, right? Like what would be the lowest G note on a guitar, right? Like open, like lowest string third fret, which is I mean, like I can barely hit that note. I wouldn't 
I wouldn't sign up to like sing that note on stage because it, it'd be a coin right. flip as to whether or not I could get down to it with with regularity. There, there is a note. There, there is a note um, from the song that she stole. Tears dry on their own. Uh, <laughs> that when we get to it, I'll, I'll pick it out. But it is low. Like she's, she's reaching deep, and she nails it. It makes sense that she was listening to people like Frank Sinatra. That's how this kind of record comes off for sure, as being about the delivery of the lyrics and about her vocal performance. She has some duets right before her death, right? Are they with Tony Bennett? Are they with Sinatra? Does anybody know? She did something with Tony Bennett. She also appeared. I don't know if I'd call this a duet, but she she did that song Valerie on Mark Ronson's album, which was actually a Zootons cover. That yeah, that it's band. funny you say that. I, heard, no, I no, actually heard way, that song today. It's way older than that, though. Is it really? It's like, yeah, it's like a girl group song, but I, I knew it from the Zootons too. Oh, okay, that I didn't know. Okay, yeah. so I guess it's it's. Uh, I can't think of the group's name off the top of my head, but it's like a song from the '60s. Ronettes, maybe. Oh. I don't know. Maybe. Well, that was another sort of thing that she was really known for. If, you know, back to our, you know, whether we comment on people's appearances or not, or how comfortable we fear about, feel about that. Her, her appearance is, is part of, I think what a lot of people associate her with. If you, if you haven't seen Amy Winehouse, which, you know, I, I would be shocked. Go ahead and Google. Cause she, she has a very uh, unique look, although it harkens back to, you know, those early days of like the Ronettes and, and you know, like the beehive hairdo and, you know, she, except she sort of took it to an extreme with uh, just being heavily tattooed and, and always seeming to wear like a wife beater type shirt. She on also stage. looks pretty strung out. Like, let's call a spade a spade, right? She doesn't look healthy for the most part ever. She does not look healthy in, in her like heyday or when she really blew up, which was which was essentially this when this album came out um she did not look great but i think like most people who have kind of fallen into that situation if you if you go back and watch some of the older like interviews she actually was she started her path like really young so by the time she was like 16 she was singing in bars and pubs and oh wow okay almost verging on like a professional she actually got signed to um so that guy Simon Fuller, who started the like American Idol franchise. Oh, that that's where I know that name from, right? I was like, that that sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. Somehow he kind of caught wind of of what she was doing and, and signed her. But in those early days, if you watch interviews, I mean, she looks like curvaceous and healthy. healthy? And I want to say, yeah, yeah, you know, and 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 has a lot of like wit and sarcasm. But yeah, she she definitely was a shell of herself as the short years went by i just sure. want to throw out a i just want to throw out a quick correction so we don't have to deal with all the uh, incoming fan mail but uh you were right alan <laughs> valerie is a zuton song my mistake ah uh, so check that? out so check out the zutons i must have heard another cover of it that was purposely trying to sound like the 60s or something but my mistake zutons are a great band check them out well we're gonna pull out that uh audio drop of you saying alan you were right and we'll just play that <laughs> Honestly, for the next <laughs> sixty minutes. Yeah, no. that's that's my my project for the twenty twenty three is having those sound effects on hand. Right. <laughs> yeah, we got to work. Soundboard. You're, you're the tech guy. Can can you? Can yeah, you... I'll I'll figure it out. I'll figure out our soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Yeah, so she actually, so, you know, we talked about this earlier. She she cut two albums in her career. The first one was an album called Frank, which, you know, I mentioned Frank Sinatra earlier was a was a nod to, to, to Sinatra. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Because I actually listened to that today just to get a, a, a flavor when I realized that she only had two albums. That totally makes sense. It's really different. She actually ended up kind of disowning that album, even though I think it's pretty decent. I don't think it's as good as, as Back to Black, but they're very different. It, but I mm-hmm. would describe that as more sort of like jazz, hip hop, you know, kind of confluence. Um, mm-hmm. But she she made great lengths to like disassociate herself from that album. I'm not entirely sure why. But by the time, you know, Back to Black came out, 2008 was when she really exploded with this album and won a bunch of Grammys, you know, including record of the year for rehab song of the year, best new artist, a few other things. So by, by this point in her career, like she was out there in the public sphere became, you know, fodder for the, the paparazzi and, um, yeah, especially in England they're they are ruthless. In yeah. England, that, and that really paparazzi. just in general. Yeah. Right. That like, you sort of just have issues and people are just like following you around, feeding on it. Like that just sucks. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Well, and I think she, she was so young when, when, when all this went Mm -hmm. down, um, a lot of people attribute it to her relationship with this guy, Blake Fielder civil, which (laughs) if you look at this guy, like, I don't want to judge looks, you know, but this guy was punching way outside of his weight class. if, if (laughs) If you Google this guy, but apparently he's the one that sort of introduced her to to drugs and, and oh, alcohol God. and kind of led to that decline. But anyway, back to the album itself. You know, Phil, I'd love to hear kind of your take on. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, you know, I, so I'm going to draw a weird uh, not comparison, but like a line. Right. For like my personal experience. Uh, this record for me, like it has a very like post hip hop thing. And what I mean by that is it's just. It's, it's clearly like a 60s, early 70s, Motown, R&B, retro vibe. But it, it's just, the producer is obviously aware of hip-hop. He's heard hip-hop. And there are just elements of the production, specifically around the bass, the kick drum. And for me, this like there's a weird through line here uh, between this record and The Score by the Fugees. Hmm. Which was a record that I felt like I couldn't really enjoy when I was... 15 or 16 and it came out like because I wasn't into hip hop and like my identity was all caught up in like being a kid that played guitar right and being guitar kid so I think this record is fabulous um and I think it like it just it I, I think it like connects and it communicates really well um you know we'll get into some of Adam's complaints I think uh, and I don't think they're no. wrong, so I, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to talking about those because I don't think they're. Uh, I don't think they're unfair uh, <laughs> to register. Phil, it's funny that you mentioned the Fugees because the first time I ever actually heard Amy Winehouse, so uh, Courtney, my my wife, actually was the first person I knew that was listening to this back in, you know, whatever it was, 2007 ish, and I remember walking in the house and being like, "Are you listening to Lauren Hill?" You know, is this like the new Lauren Hill? Because I thought that it the voice I was see that, really similar. Sure. Um, so I, I think that Fuji. Well, and also one of the producers for this album. So one of them was was Mark Ronson before he became you know a much more well known known producer. He was you know mostly in like the DJ scene back then. But um, 
you know, there's also this guy, Salam Remy, who, who worked with the Fugees. And so I think was, you know, pretty steeped in that, in that scene. You know, it's an interesting comparison. And I happen to have listened to the score two days ago in the car all the way through. So it's funny. It's at the top of my mind. And what I was noticing when I was listening to that the other day is it's a great record. And part of the reason I think it's great is because it's hard to pin down what genre it's in. I, I think that's part of what maybe Phil is trying to say. And I, I find that interesting. And I even turned to Tom, who I was in the car with, and I said, hey, are there other records like this that kind of ride this line of soulful hip hop, you know, just have a lot of melodies on them, different things. He's like, yeah, not really. The, the score is amazing. Like right. amazing. <laughs> And I sort of agree that Lauren Hill's voice sounds a bit like Amy Winehouse's voice, so I get that comparison. But there, I have to play counter... From there on, I play counterpoint, because this one is really, to me, really easy to put into a genre. It feels very... It, it just doesn't do it for me, overall. I think this genre has to, it lives and dies on her delivery and on the songwriting. And some of the songs are definitely good, and her delivery is definitely solid. But one, I have some issues, specific issues with each of those. But I just think overall, what I was feeling when I was listening to it is that it's all a bit calculated, a bit recycled. Nothing new. This doesn't feel like there's anything new about it. Ooh, and that, so that's bothersome to me. And then when I found out it was Mark Ron, our friend yes, Mark Ronson. Yes, that, yes. Who, I can get down on this. Yes. Who, I, who, I, who is probably most famous or, you know, he's done so many tracks, but he produced Uptown Funk one of the biggest hits of the last 20 years, probably. And what I've always felt about Uptown Funk is I begrudgingly admit it's a good song, but it sounds like it was made like a, by a pop music robot, like by an AI, that just put everything that's ever happened, every number one hit into a blender, and distilled it down into a fine... You've got this Frankenstein machine yeah. that came out. Oh, that's a really good yeah, point. Yeah, like it's, and like that, it's a you're computer. You're right, that matches. Yes, like there's like a, a formula, and it's been hacked. Like it's he's been hacking hacked. your senses. And he did it. I admit yeah, he did oh, yeah, it. I agree. It works, but it doesn't feel real to me. It doesn't feel human to me. And so this had a little bit of that. So that when I made that connection, that, that kind of helped. One, one of the problems, I think, maybe we could talk generally about this style of singing, this kind of delivery man style, this Frank Sinatra. I'm not sure what the crooner style, whatever. It's It's always been a little hard because it doesn't have... It sounds arrogant, like there's no fragility in the delivery versus another person I kept thinking of who died young and had an amazing, uh, soulful, unique voice was Jeff Buckley. But every note of Jeff Buckley, you're hearing the fragility of a human being, whereas Amy Winehouse is very confident singer. But it just comes to me. It just comes off as as arrogant, I guess, and and that's kind of how Frank Sinatra feels a lot too. But that feels more like earned arrogance. Well, I I went back and I deliberately listened to her first album to see if she really sounded like this. And I'm big on when people's authentic vocals shine through. There are certain instances I've mentioned before where when you're a vocalist and you really are reaching for something, that's when you're you're raw. You're really out there. This is your exposed voice. And on the album Frank, I feel like you could hear who she was. It was a much more authentic sound versus the, in our text chain, I joked, I called it the uh, Novocaine Jaw Millennial Syndrome, which is our shower. (laughs) Instead of shirt, it's shower. And it just, it annoys me because it's an affectation that I don't think she needs. Yeah. 
I think her voice and I and I think aspects of this album would have come off better if she had just done her real voice. So that's one one of the critiques I have. No, it's actually I'm really glad you said that because like that that comment on the text thread because it gave me a little time to like think about it, right? Because something I love about this album and it sort of is in that like Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, jazz crooner. I would even go as far as to like say that there's an element of this in Steely Dan, right? And, and Fagan's delivery where they're like, they're sort of changing character from line to line, right? Or, or, or sort of, you know what I mean? It's almost like, and then he said, and then they deliver it in a voice, right? But I had never looked at it from your perspective, which is, well, what is Amy Winehouse's real voice? What is it? Right. What yeah, does it sound and, like? And not, and, Am and I hearing you, a character? When you posed yeah. that question, you make an interesting point that like, at least on this record, what sounds like her real voice to me doesn't show up till track six or seven and really only hangs out fully on one tune, right? Which is tears, which I would, I would have said, uh, oh, love is a losing game. That is my note that where I feel like, oh, here she is. There's this one is the song, singer I that I want to hear. Either just friends. There's one other song before that one because you had pointed that out where I was like, oh, I think she like actually pops in for a line, right? Right. But like, but I, but yeah, there's it's I, I just, it's an interesting observation. I liked it. I agree, it's an interesting observation. But I think if you, I think you guys are being a little bit unfair in the sense that I think almost every vocalist we can think of has put on has decided on a singing style actively i i will agree that it's a singing uh, you can have style and i i struggle to put my finger on the execution of when i think it works and when it doesn't and i I don't want it to come off that like it it doesn't when it's new and modern and adam just doesn't like it you know what i mean like i'm trying to find out what's the what's the secret sauce or what's the actual formula that i'm trying to describe as to what defines being authentic but still uh, putting on a voice well i think that's what's the challenge with with sort of her career are you know she started out as this sort of singing prodigy she really didn't have vocal lessons even though she was you know highly encouraged to pursue her her singing career but she was not like a trained vocalist in that sense and when she was discovered she had already been writing her own songs mostly on guitar the guitar is not great but she's using that as her, you know, platform to write these songs. And I think in, in some of those older songs, there is a little bit more authenticity. And I wonder if that's like the byproduct of when you get sucked into that machine of like the the guy who started the American Idol franchise. Because if you look at the the sequence of events, you know, she writes the album Frank, which is a little bit more sort of like chilled out jazz hip hop. By the time she gets to back to black. They brought in the Dap Kings. Then you bring in Mark Ronson. I wonder how much of that was her natural voice being sort of like churned into the the pop machine. Yeah, she's like a component of the machine. Yeah, like a derivative, you know, product they, they, almost. Tom Brady. They, they knew this. <laughs> I don't know. If, Tom Brady lasted a little uh, yeah, longer all, than all right, her. Yeah, all right. Let's, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, I cut, yeah, sure. RG3. <laughs> she probably still eats tomatoes also. Um, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it, it, this is a commodity. Like, wait a second. Wait a second. Sorry. Sorry not to cut you off. Why doesn't Tom Brady eat tomatoes? I really be, don't know the answer. Because they're inflammatory. Anything that blooms at night. 
He doesn't need. <laughs> what? That's that's the threshold. He doesn't need anything that casts. I shadow. believe so. Yeah, he has a very strict diet. <laughs> Jesus, that oh is God. that is real strict. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's well, two years older than me, and I can barely seems, get off the couch. So. Yeah, it seems <laughs> yeah, to be working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, if, if the brew is in the pudding, maybe I should, I should yeah. you know, I should experiment with some of his uh, yeah. protocols. <laughs> Just clarifying that this is a commodity, that when you finish mixing this album, it doesn't take a genius to know this is going to sell. Agreed. <laughs> yes. Fair. Fair. All right. I think we've got a lot of... Uh, opinions thrown out so far let's get into some more of the actual tracks here um let's let's get things going with you know i'm no good just say like i think this is a great example of post hip-hop right like the the way the drums come in the beginning the way the the bass drops like it's it's just it's this yes this has like a motown sort of jazz crooners thing but the the hip-hop influence like it's just not like they don't try to pretend at all like that didn't happen like they didn't hear it they embrace what they like about it i also i alan i don't know if you know this is true but I had listened to something about this record, specifically about the way the drums were produced. And I think a lot of these tracks are literally one drum mic. And this is a, a song where I can really imagine this being one microphone on a drum I read, kit. I read and that And it's too. a little overdriven. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> like oh, hair, oh yeah. yeah. Like they, they run it through all of the like every $10,000 audio process, analog audio processor they have. All the sweet stuff. But... It's still just one really nice mic somewhere above a really good drummer playing a yeah, drum right. kit. Yeah, there's some there's some deep like wall of sound esque stuff on the best example, but did you guys happen to speaking of hip hop, did you go listen to when Ghostface Killer did a cover of this and rapped over it? No. <laughs> I liked it better, to be honest with you. So maybe that supports <laughs> Phil's theory. Like you more trouble than Tony Starks And you need to just walk away like Kelly Clarkson I know we was free to sleep around town But I figured you said that Cause how I get down Now of course you was out there messing around I would've told you once you go ghost You never go back try GME Like I don't know how to Mac I'm a darning Top of the line I stay flying Stop trying to keep covering the lies And using my credit cards to buy diamonds We need to straighten this out Get to the bottom of it all Let's go before we start the war Begin with two reasons why we need to talk and stop popping up in my cribs all over New York. 
Yeah, maybe that just made me realize Ghostface is like my fourth favorite member of the Wu-Tang Clan, by the way, so it's not even about that, but <laughs> it just added a new ele- another element to it that didn't make this just wash over me like water. I thought, to me, you mentioned hip-hop. This one, to me, sounded like more like a James Bond soundtrack. I so it had a little bit of that 60s, 70s spy thing. Maybe like a more modern James Bond soundtrack, which I know Adele did a James Bond theme recently. And, you know, there have been other stuff in that category. I also noticed she references Roger Moore in the song. So maybe I, that's was, a great, yeah. Maybe yeah, that's why. That. Is that. Does he get shit on a lot in England? Because it wasn't the line something like, you know, they're treating me terrible like Roger Moore. I was like, does he, is he routinely destroyed yeah, in the tabloids yeah, or something? Like, I don't yeah, know. Like, is like, he... Well, beef just me out or whatever. <laughs> just compared to Sean Connery, I guess. Yeah, yeah, maybe it is just the double uh, seven reference. Snuff me out. Oh, and then maybe that makes. I don't know. I mean, either way, right. she's definitely. <laughs> uh, let me get the line here. Yeah, you're tearing me down like I'm Roger Moore. <laughs> He's just sitting there with a tear streaming down his cheek. Right. <laughs> oh, poor Roger Moore. <laughs> I thought it was over. It's like every time that highlight of Bill Buckner runs, like. <laughs> He just like, he just has like his heart breaks just a little bit again. I'm sure all our fans know what you're talking about, Phil. But just in case, you might want to clarify that reference. Uh, Bill Buckner is the first baseman for the Boston Red Sox who had the uh, game winning out of the 1984 World Series uh, roll through his legs at about three miles an hour. The Mets <laughs> won game six uh, and then would go on to win game seven and the World Series. And Bill Buckner, who was uh, a uh, all-star, I believe they retired his number in Boston, borderline Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, did he join the twenty-seven club? After no, that he moment? didn't. But I mean, needless to say, <laughs> he was never the same. Thank you for explaining that to all of our listeners, i.e., me. <laughs> we cater to baseball fans and musicians. Yes, alike. thank you. Okay, I, I really like this song, and but what's, what's interesting to me is I don't like this song because of Amy. I think it's a great, I think the, the backing band is really stellar on this song. It's been dancing in my head all week, but I don't think she is necessarily like flexing anything solid here. I don't know that this is like the best showcase of her necessarily, but I think it's a great song. It's, it's well produced. It's had a lot of creative input from you know people who know how to do this shit so mm-hmm. you know i i think it was, a, it was a good song let's uh let's kind of move on to our next track so we, we've got me and mr jones
I just think the lyrics are fabulous. <laughs> I just think they're so hilarious. Uh, is this the is I mean this can't be the 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 beginning of fuckery, right? She didn't coin fuckery. I don't know. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Google but that, I mean right? it's it, it's <laughs> I feel like it was kind of funny your it was funny the first time she said it. And then to to continue going back to that and to have the the backup singer <laughs> doing it as well. <laughs> like I can only imagine like you know Aretha Franklin being in the studio and they're like, "Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. We need to add some background vocals that say fuckery." And it just <laughs> seems so it's it's odd. I I I felt the same way. There were a couple of moments where she um says she says dick a couple times throughout the album and I think it's also backed up by the backup singers and and you're right it's just an odd juxtaposition to take that 60s 60s vibe and although the lines that she does use dick are hilarious there's one there's some rhyme that she does and I can't I wish I'd written it down I don't know Rob, you're usually pretty, pretty good at picking she out the She says you don't lines. mean dick to me at some point. <laughs> yeah, but it and like the rhyme with that is fantastic. I'll have to I'll try to dig it up as we proceed. I, so there are two lyrics in particular that really crack me up in this. Well, one doesn't even crack me up. One's a question. She misses the slick Rick gig. Why is she hanging out with slick Rick? I always can. I, what is, I wish Tom was on to tell me something about slick Rick. And I just it just sounds like a cool name. This this felt like a, aspects of this felt like an inside joke, and I just wasn't part of it. Now that might just be because I'm stupid, and I'm not at all pop, pop culturally aware. But it it felt like this one it missed the mark for me just because I just didn't get a lot of the the references. But well, and what, yeah, it's a cool tune. The the title is also a reference. What was, what's the tune that the title is a reference oh, to? Oh, uh, me and Mrs. Jones uh, by Billy Paul, maybe. Yes, it, I mean it's 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 hot. It's a pretty hot like. We Early got a 70s thing going on. I just yeah. think that my problem with this record is that everything about it is referential and nothing mm. about it feels new. And it even when it tries to be edgy, to me, it's like housewives being naughty jazz. Like, it's not that interesting. It thinks it's really edgy, but it's not. You, you know, you know, Rob, this this is an interesting point. And, uh, you know, I, I know we're probably, you know, pushing 40 episodes in now. I'm surprised it hasn't come up before. But a really provocative idea, to me anyway, that was brought up in this this Jaron Lanyard book that I loved, uh, You Are Not a Gadget, is, is he basically suggests that everything has been retro since the internet. This is an unintended consequence of the internet and digital technology and the proliferation of recording equipment and like uh, low-cost access to coding, right? is that like everybody is so excited to see what they can do with somebody else's idea that so few people are out there doing their own things. And he makes the argument that the last true art form, the last truly unique musical art form is hip hop. Because he says hip hop uses the loop and the sample, right? Which is unnatural and sort of makes you uncomfortable naturally, right? But he kind of makes the argument it uses that tension and the urgency created by that in a way that is artistic. And I can't deny that this record suffers from that really badly, right? It is clearly a highly intellectual, right? Like uh, creative project worked on by many of the best of the best to just retro something really hard, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of even attempting to do something truly new. 
Right. Yeah, and I yeah, it's an interesting point. I don't necessarily think I don't necessarily agree with the sentiment wholly, but there's certainly some truth in it about there not being new things anymore. I also think it's a little bit of a high bar. You know, new art forms don't just come every year, like naturally, right? <laughs> so it makes sense that you only get one of those in a lifetime, and we already technically lived through the birth of hip-hop, I suppose. That's true. Well, and I think when you're deliberately calling back to an old-school, you know, art form, it, it's, it is hard to do something new within that, that domain. It's not, I don't mind when things are retro. One of our favorite bands is Dr. Dog. They're clearly retro. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like retro. I like plenty of retro things or things that have an eye to the past, clearly. What I don't love is that this does feel, you, you were alluding to it, Phil, it feels like an exercise in how can we, can we produce something that sounds like it was made in a different era if we throw all the money and production talent and musical talent at it? And the answer is yes. And second yeah, question is, for will, sure. will, the it, will, yes. will yes. it sell? Yes, it will. It can be you could sell it at Whole Foods for Christ's sake. Right. It's popular. <laughs> I, uh, I actually own this on vinyl and I purchase it on. I actually listened to it uh, today uh, to prep. Uh, I purchased it on Amazon because I was like buying two or three records on Amazon. And they were like, hey, people who purchased, you know, these records also purchased this. There was no correlation whatsoever. But the reason I bought it is because it was like $7.99, mm. which means they printed an insane amount of these on vinyl, right? And when I got but this it, album, Back to Black. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And when I received it, it was even like slightly lower quality packaging. So what I mean by that is like somebody who's bought a bunch of vinyl over the last decade I feel like vinyl packaging is absolutely moving in the direction of like high-end user experience. You open the Apple box and it's like, yeah, this is sweet, you know? Yeah. This was not that. This was more like, you know, when you got the seventh run of a Beatles record and like the sticker on it wasn't quite as cool. And like, <laughs> you know, the paper it was printed on wasn't quite as good. So yeah, I mean, they moved a lot of these. Like a lot. Well, imagine, I mean, this sucks to think about, but it's a real thing in capitalism where the second the news comes out that she has died the guys start printing these they're like start the record press up right now yeah 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 totally good lord unless you're already printing beatles (laughs) records in which case just keep printing those actually wasn't there uh every 10 years the beatles come back around what was the other record Oh, it was Lust for Life. It was the Iggy Pop record where they didn't have, they, it was popular, but they didn't stock the shelves enough because Elvis Presley had just died. And they, all the presses oh, I remember, yes, were printing I remember Elvis records yeah. and they couldn't, it was like back ordered to get more <laughs> Lust for Life on the shelves. <laughs> and then everyone forgot about them. <laughs> all right. So let's, let's move on to the uh, title track uh, of the album back. Before we move on, I just want to point no, out one last. Be- no. Sorry, sorry. I'm kidding. <laughs> Before we move what on, what kind of fuckery is this? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, that's it's pretty much what I want to get to. We didn't talk about the fact that she talks about how Sammy Davis Jr. is her best black Jew, and then the the background singers, you know, echo best black Jew. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. was Jewish. He converted. Yes. Yeah, Very yeah, yeah. famously converted, yeah. I talked to my wife about this, and she was like, oh, yeah, Sammy Davis Jr. converted to Judaism. Does anybody know this story? Because I don't. Well, it's going to blow your mind, but I learned it from The Simpsons, Phil. 
bring it on. <laughs> I just remember them referencing his biography about converting or something. I, I don't. I can't remember the exact quote, but relatively arduous process. I mean, again, I I don't know what the uh, the reason for the for the conversion was, but yeah, okay. maybe we'll do a Sammy Davis Jr. album. I don't know if he's on the list. I thought maybe somebody would have a a story. Maybe our listeners can uh, enlighten us with with some uh, some history. I can't even. Yeah, I don't know that much about him at all, to be honest. Candyman, right? That's his big song. Is he on the list? That's what we really need to figure out. <laughs> Sammy yeah, Davis. Right. Yeah, I would guess he's on the list. I don't know. Robert Dimer, he's a cagey fella. <laughs> if you're listening to this, Robert, sorry, please come on the show. We'd love you on the show. <laughs> all right. So, title track. Back to black. It's been a- this is a great song i think it's sort of the the peak of the album i know mark ronson actually wrote the the piano line and the chords on this so you know maybe that gives it a little bit of more heft or a little bit more sort of manufactured you know magic one thing about this song i would say if you have a chance like there is there's a video that i remember seeing a couple years ago that i you know resurfaced in in going through this album where Mark Ronson's in the studio. It's just him and Amy. And, you know, she's going through this song. I think it's in like one or two takes. But to me, like even just seeing that video, you really hear her isolated vocals. And I think when you strip away all the other instrumentation, to me, that's when you hear like how special her voice really is. And, you know, I do think this is a great song. But in some ways, I, I want that clip made me wonder if this album and all the production is doing like a disservice to how great her voice really is. At the at the at the top of the uh, of the show, we talked about Amy Winehouse in comparison to Lauren Hill. And I think it's a fair comparison. I think it's a fun comparison. I think they're both freaks. Rob, I also think you're right. I think Lauren Hill is clearly just insanely freakier and just a clear cut above. I don't think I said that, but okay. Really? I thought you did. I thought you were like, nah. I did not. I didn't say Lardo was freakier, but yeah, sure. Well, not freak. I mean, I mean like freaky, like in a good way. Like she's more talented. Oh, I freak of nature. I just said I like yeah. the score better than this record. That's all I was saying. But well, go ahead. I, I think, I think Lauren Hill is like a, a significantly greater vocal talent, but I do think that they both like, they have a, a, a crazy delivery uh, and like range, the range is insane uh, to me, completely insane. So same, I, I'm going to stay consistent. This is a great song. 
this album lives and dies on the quality of the songs. I have not heard this song before, and it's great. And so bravo, right? So this one, to me, is the standout track, because it's maybe the only song I feel like feels new to me. That's, that's my biggest complaint. So this song, they nail it. I think, like you said, Mark Ronson was maybe wrote the bones of it and then collaborated with her. I love the... It's, I mean, I love the song structure in general, but I also thought there's some nice production touches, like there's that left pan super tremolo guitar that I thought was adding a lot of almost, you know, it's it has notes in it, but it's very vibey, like ambiance uh, to the production that was very cool. So, yeah, when the songs are strong, that's when you pair it with this amazing delivery and you get something really magical, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I I do feel like this song, it, it almost made many of the other songs feel like weak in comparison. Like it almost really shined a light on the fact that this album's a little bit imbalanced in that it's got a few like really standout songs. And then a lot of it is a little bit throwaway. This one, this is the one that gave me the James Bond uh, theme song vibes when the strings came in in the, in the second chorus. But overall... Yes, I, I agree with you guys. This, this is one of the highlights of the album. I think her voice sounds great. Musically, there's a lot of nice underlying counter melodies that come through and play off of her vocal line really nicely. And this song also justifies the 50 musicians listed in the credits. Oh my. <laughs> there's like timpanies, there's bells, there's strings, there's guitar, and then just the, the, the straight band as well. So th- this is the one where I, I was like, where the hell are they using 50 mu- Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. I hear it. <laughs> Definitely hear it on well, this one. Props to the tambourine player. I thought the tambourine was particularly yeah. tasty on this one. Yes, totally. Most, totally. The most impossible instrument to play. God almighty. It is very hard. I agree. <laughs> all right. So let's let's move on to uh, Love is a Losing Game. Let's, let's, let's check this one out. For you, I was a flame. Love is a losing game. Five story fire as you came. Love is a losing game. What I wish I never played. Oh, what a mess we made. And now the final frame. Love is a losing game. Played out by the band. What you guys think? This was my favorite song actually on the whole album it's it's just beautiful it's one of those songs where you listen to it and you think is is this a cover just because it feels so classic it feels like it's and you know not that it sounds like a bunch of other songs but it's just so well done the melody is beautiful this one actually really made me sad because when i was listening to this and thinking about love and being a losing game and losing people that you love and her death so this one brought a whole bunch of emotions to me as I was listening to it and her voice. So this is, this is the one track where I really feel 
she just went into the studio and was herself on this entire song. And yeah, it's, it's just absolutely beautiful. So this was my favorite track. Yeah, I agree. The song had a classic feel, felt like American Songbook type stuff. So it was nice. I didn't think production-wise it really stood out too much. It kind of just blended in with stuff. One thing I noticed about the structure of the song, I don't know if you guys will appreciate this, but their version of a turnaround from, like, the chorus ends on a C chord, I think, and then the verse starts on a C chord, and they just... They just keep going. Well, no, they just drop it at a, a diminished four, just for, like, a measure. <laughs> like, that's that's their... <laughs> no, 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 I didn't. But it's it. actually quite effective. Like, it's a cool little trick. You know, Rob, I have a note. Uh, I have a note here that it's that it's interesting that it starts an, on an augmented chord, uh-huh. and I'm wondering now if it's not an augmented chord, like if it's that same chord. That I mean, yeah, basic, yeah, it begins on like a very tense. It must be the same one, right? Just like a really tense chord, yeah. Right? But it's like understated, and it moves right it's on. Super understated. Right? I, I what I'm commenting on is that I think I've been trained to think that. To navigate from a C back to a C and feel like there's movement, there has to be this complicated circle of fifths yeah, thing yeah, going sure, on. Sure. They just take a little one bar break on another chord and then come right back into it. That, that like that like no one would ever think is like going anywhere else but back to the one chord. Right, but it's effective. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, something I love about the, I I love this song too. I think uh, Adam, I love your highlight about this being like her real voice, and I'd never really thought of it that way. Um, I think this song has a great Ringo Starr drum beat. And what I mean by that is it has like a real, like, it's like a lyrical drum beat. It fits in almost like a melody. It holds the pocket, but like, there's no like eighth notes on the hi-hat or four on the floor. You know, it's like, if you go back and listen, it's more like a, a percussion section, uh, a very simple percussion section on a drum kit. That's, and I just think yeah, it's, that's I a just really think good cool. point. Yeah. Yeah. I think this drummer's amazing, by the way. I don't know who this guy is, but. He's an ace. And I mean, the, the lyrics are not, you know, super deep, super complicated, but they're just sweet. And they do kind of harken back to that 1960s simplicity, just the, the metaphor of a fire uh, and the metaphor of a card game. It's they're, they're simple, but they're sweet. And it's a tight, what is it, two, two and a half yeah, minutes? It's like two and a half minutes, yeah. They're in, they're out. It's, it's just a nice little wrapped up in a nice package. The drummer on this track is uh, one of the founding members of the Dap Kings with Sharon Jones. His name is Homer Steinweiss. It's exactly the name I would expect from a, a soul. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that, yeah. And uh, in addition to being a drummer, his uh, Wikipedia profile lists him as a songwriter, chef, composer, and producer. It's a nice... So he wrote that himself, obviously. (laughs) Last edited by Homer McHomerson, or whatever his name was. Call call him Chef, please. (laughs) (laughs) Chef Homer. All right. Let's uh, let's check out our uh, last track here, which is Tears Dry on Their Own. All I can ever be to you is the darkness that we know And this regret I got accustomed to Once it was the ride when we were at our high Waiting for you in the hotel at night I knew I had him at my match But every moment we get snatched I don't know why I got so attached It's my responsibility you don't own nothing to me but to walk away. I have no capacity. He walks away, the sun goes down, he takes the day. 
or do I stress the man when there's so many real things at hand? We could have never had it all, we had to hit a wall. So this is inevitable withdrawal. Even if I stop one of you, that perspective for Screech is the record stops. <laughs> Sorry. So I just want to say I had a hard time keeping up with the text string this week because it was a little out of pocket. And I was listening to this song, not hearing all your complaints quite yet. And I was thinking, man, this sounds like a standard. Man, this has the coolest chords on this whole record. <laughs> oh, this is great voice movement through these chords. This is so cool. This is great songwriting. Great job, guys. And then I realized that it's stolen. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, obviously this is basically stolen from ain't no mountain high enough the the marvin Gaye song yeah it's it sucks well, i mean in all fairness the melody <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and sort sucks. of vocal movement is very different yeah so so when i say it sucks i what i mean is it sucks that i, I don't know how to classify this kind of shit because we've had this discussion before on several occasions whether it was you know beastie boys who are you know their entire album is samples MIA also had was pretty egregious offenses of just taking a song and just not doing anything. Well, they it. call it. So I actually, this was the first time I had heard this word. They call it an interpolation, which is anyone else familiar with that word? Because it sounds like it's as opposed to an extrapolation. I don't know. I, I'm not sure where, like what the derivative is, but just, well, just so we're clear, they took the chord chart only and then they just played against that, and then they wrote a new melody on top of it, right? They didn't play. They didn't play. They took the track. Well, no, no, no. So it is. It is up no? a few steps because it sounds sonically like it doesn't sound like a reproduction. It sounds like the underlying musical track to "Ain't No Mountain High Enough," which it's I've a step. To high, it's a step or two higher. Times. I, I okay. think having played like so, this is one of the bass lines that I first learned as I was getting into like Motown music, and I remember. It was around that time that I was learning this that I first heard this song, and it was just like, huh, like did they just steal this wholesale? I do think it's a step higher, but it also does, there's a key change in Ain't No Mountain High Enough towards the end. They also do. But Phil, you're right. There, there is, the, the the vocals are not exactly true, you know, to the to the original. They, they do come I think they're far enough off. And, and, you know, this this might, you know, speak to back to the the concept of like the the formula right and like hacking your your response to this i i would suggest that the the melody is far enough off that you might as a listener you might not realize it's ain't no mountain high enough you might just be like man this feels really good and familiar and then the lyrics would come in and they sort of take you further off the trail well that's how i felt that was my feeling as a listener so I was almost yeah. <laughs> fooled. Luckily, I was in deep analysis mode. and Luckily, your friends ruined luckily. that joy for you. <laughs> and Alan, you're right. I'm going to backtrack on something I said. I did just bring up the, the end of the song, and you're right. The, the drums are distinctly not the same exact you know, tone, timber, and, and hits of the original. So yes, they, they, uh, they performed... The exact same song though. But oh, it was oh without question. Just taking it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, here, here's a just a, a thought exercise here. Like, if if you don't, if you've never heard that song, and you put this in a vacuum, do do you guys feel like this is a good song? Yes. Yeah. I 
I can't take myself out of knowing the actual one. I I don't know that I can play that thought experiment. Well, that, no, it's a <laughs> that's fair. It's a well written tune, as as we know, which is why it was a hit before. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> I find it puzzling above all else. That's that's really what I'm left feeling. It's just confusion and the best. I think Phil posited the best, oper- you know, best thing we could say about how it was created, why it was created, rationale for its creation, is that it's about hacking, it's about recycling old music. The whole thing, the whole exercise is about recycling old music into a modern package. And so they just like to push the envelope a little bit. Or Did they have to pay for this? That would, that would be my next question. Is this payable? Because listen, I'm all for stealing little snippets of chord progressions everyone every songwriter worth a dime has opened the real book and stolen right. a chord progression here and there cf and but g this is a little bit thief <laughs> yeah without a doubt i will what my one other note is that we could drop in a clip here at the 52 second mark i think is the lowest note she hits on the album which is approaching, if not surpassing, the Fiona Apple low notes from that debut album that she had. Why do I stress the man when there's so many real things at hand? We could have never had it all. And she, she nails it. Sounds great. So well done, Amy. You did it. On the note. Did you, did you, how, what, do you know what notes these are? Just curious. I, no, I, I didn't walk over to my piano on it. Yeah, but they're But low. it sounds. It sounds low for her. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like she's near the bottom Where, of her. Where's your dedication to this podcast that you didn't <laughs> transcribe the vocal notes of this album? Much much, much apologies. <laughs> All right. So I think we, we've kind of gone through a, a representative sample of, of this album. I think it's time to go around the horn and figure out, does this album belong on the list? Let's uh, start with you, Phil. So I'll give this record a yes. Uh, I'll have to admit that, you know, coming in that I'm, I'm biased just because I've had a positive experience with this record, you know, just as something I've listened to on long car rides and like drunk late at night many times. So I just love this record. And for that reason and that reason alone, I definitely think it is a reason that people should listen to this record before they die. This is Adam. So I listened to this album probably 10 to 15 times this week. And then yesterday I listened to Amy Winehouse's first album, Frank, twice yesterday. I liked that album more. There's something about this album, what it's trying to do, what I think it accomplishes. But I think her first album, Frank, is a better representation of who she is as a singer. And so I'm going to say no to this, but with the caveat that if you want to hear an Amy Winehouse album, go listen to Frank. Rob, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I got to go no here. I just don't think there's anything particularly new, particularly authentic. I suppose I'm flip-flopping a little bit on the criteria. You know what? Screw that. I'm not going to be Tom. I'm not going to flip-flop on the criteria. I just don't think... I think you can go your life without hearing Rehab. Back to Black is the best song, in my opinion. But I just don't think it justifies a full listen. I just got bored here. And I am very sorry that the world has lost a talent like Amy Winehouse. She's clearly talented. I think she would have gone on to do some really cool things. But this just feels too much like a product to me to sign off. So it's a no for me. 
Yeah, fair points. So I'm going to throw a wrench in our kind of system here. I'm, I'm going to say yes, and I don't know where that leaves us with with a, with a tie here. But, you know, I, I think combined with the obviously like commercial success, which, again, this is an unabashedly like engineered product, right? This was this was designed for commercial success and, and achieved that. I do think it's hard to ignore the fact that sh- that this is really there's not much there from someone who I, I do think had an entirely unique voice and who really was a supreme talent. So to say that you should go without hearing any of her music or hearing her voice, I think it belongs there. And I do like the album, even though if I can kind of suspend my disbelief a little bit in knowing that it's being written in order to seep into my eardrums and live there, you know, forever. Um, but I'm going to say yes. So is this, is this our first tie? Tie, tie goes to the runner. No, you, uh, you're the, the deciding runner. vote. Yeah. Nice work. All right. It's on. Well, it's on baby. Amy, I did it just for you. <laughs> <laughs> we did it together. Rob and Adam, I would like to say that I think those were the best no's we've had yet. I think that ah. most, those are the most constructive no's. All right. I don't hate it. It's not an Eric Clapton album or anything. Like I, I get why it exists, and I'm fine with people listening to it. I, I would even be fine putting it on over dinner at some point. Yeah, I, those are fair points, though. I think there's a difference between music that you would enjoy, that you would put on, that you would listen to, versus what you would hold up as like a seminal work. So I think that's totally fair. Yeah. But since I'm hosting this episode, uh, <laughs> you wield all power. Indeed. Um, All right. Well, I will thus surrender my power over to Rob (laughs) to tell us what we're going to listen to next episode. Ah, yes. Yeah. Tom can't be with us right now. He's he's deep in the forest, putting some kind of animal blood on his face. (laughs) But I have access. Organic animal blood. (laughs) (laughs) He's making a compass out of squirrel bones or something. Okay, but I do have access to the Alpinator, so we're going to give this bad boy a spin and see what we're listening to next week. So, drum roll, please. Next week, we will be listening to David Bowie's Station to Station. Ooh. Ooh. This is interesting. This is our first Bowie? This is our first Bowie. Station to Station. I think it's the one where he was so coked out he barely remembers the sessions. Wait, I thought that was Which lust for life. Station to station. <laughs> you know what? There's like Actually, at least two where he's so coked out he can't remember the sessions, right? Well, I'll say it right off the bat. I feel I, you know, I feel like I'm a big David Bowie fan, but I'm not super familiar with this album. You know, someone who puts out work for 50 years consistently, I just I can't cover all of it. So, I think it has golden years on it. So it's kind of that era. That's, That's cool the team. hit, okay. right? So you're saying right. he's the Sparks of. <laughs> Glam rock. Well, no, they were in the same th- same boat, so he was successful. Sparks, <laughs> but but yeah, looking forward to. T's obviously a powerhouse, so looking forward to to touching on him at least. Yeah, that'll be a good one. Very cool for sure. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? We would love to hear from you. Hit us up at one thousand one album complaints at gmail we really want to hear from you, so I know you're listening out there. Give us what you got. <laughs> all, all two of you, please send us an email. Do it, please. I'm please. ready to get flooded with, with emails. 
with that, <laughs> I have been Alan. I've been Phil. I'm Rob. And I'm Adam. Boosh. Boosh.